With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. You were the vice chairman of General Electric, and you rose up and had to figure out how to strategize, how to rise up. I think that's important, not just for women, but for anyone who's challenged about how do you rise up in a hierarchy. To me, that's the foundation of why I felt I had to write this book. Just I saw so many people feeling like they needed somebody to tell them it was okay. Even the fearless founder CEOs, right? They only know so much. They have a board. So I think this is a human trait. I do. And I think what's catapulted you from success to success in your career You had to give yourself permission, and that kind of got you to the point where you could be like, okay, the next day I'll be vice chairman of the the most famous company in the world. It was exactly (laughs) that easy, but you're right. For me, I was introverted. I I had confidence issues early in my career. Even still today, I struggle with those, but it's that I I know I have a good idea. I want to ask a question in this meeting. I hold myself back. It's too stupid. So now what changed? Like what makes you switch and say, okay, I'm going to say this. In fact, you would even write down, you yeah. would, I'm going to say something in this meeting. I would say, because I, I do my homework, I'm going to come in with a point of view. Like, what are you good at? They hired me for a reason, so I should come in with a point of view. If I sat there and waited for my boss to call on me, he or she wouldn't do that. In fact, I share a story of my boss, Jeff Immelt, at one point saying, like, why are I having in these meetings? You don't say anything. Like, I expect you to show up more. You still have to build your presence in the world. You have to make a connection with people. Yeah. I am so excited to have Beth Comstock here, author of Imagine It Forward. I almost don't know how to introduce her. She's done so many things. She practically ran NBC. But the biggest title you've had is you were the vice chairman of General Electric, the biggest company in the world with the richest history, with one of the most prosperous companies ever. You know, General Electric dates all the way back to Thomas Edison and is the only original Dow Jones company that still exists. Um, Jack Welch, of course, you know, famously led it for for many, many years. And then Jeff Immelt and Immelt and now John Flannery. You were the vice chairman uh, under Jeff Immelt. But before that, you had held so many jobs at GE and also at NBC, which was, of course, was owned by GE for a long time. Um, you were practically, you know, not if not running NBC, running large chunks of it and in the running to run NBC. And, uh, uh, you know, so you, you, this book is almost, I viewed this book, I'm going to describe this book for a second, then I'll, I'll let you talk for a little bit. But this book, there's like three layers. It's almost like a history of business in the past 20 years as we've gone from big industrial to big digital. Then I would have to say, and then I didn't want to start with this, but it also has to be acknowledged, um, you know, you're a woman <laughs> and General Electric, had, I, it feels to me, had a very masculine identity and, and all the top executives were, were men or most of them. And you rose up through that and had to figure out how to strategize, how to rise up through that. And I think that's 
important, not just for women, but for for anyone who's challenged about how do you, how do you rise up in a you know overly aggressive masculine very regimented uh, you know hierarchy and uh, and then what I thought was brilliant in the book is just all the different side sections and exercises where you talk about uh, idea generation coming back from failures uh, you know motivating teams and I want to talk about a lot of that because I think many of the listeners, they themselves are at jobs and they want to figure out how to rise up, how to speak their minds, how to come up with new ideas and to be able to express them and deal with colleagues that they might be in conflict with. And this book is almost like a guide to that. Is that a fair? Yeah, it is. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, fair assessment. Did I do it, my homework? You did your homework. <laughs> I'm impressed. Thank you. Yeah, I, I did feel like I wanted to chronicle business at this crazy time in history. I feel like there, there was a part of that in why I was motivated to do it. I wanted to share kind of the change maker innovator's journey, how hard it is in these companies to make change happen and to be someone who did that and hopefully make it practical to encourage people who feel they maybe need permission and to give it to themselves and go and do these things. And then I am a woman. I led I led my way through that way. Um, I think that I bring a, diff- a perspective of difference. So I think hopefully it's a, a bit of a story of people who try to navigate their way through traditional systems with a different perspective. Do you feel, here, here, this is a question I was wondering about. So people sometimes say, women in the workplace need to talk more like men, whatever that means. Okay, and 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 put that advice to the side for a second because I'm not even sure what that advice means. Is it that they need to talk more like men or that men just talk in a way that's more almost shameless, like they're, they're a little bit more fearless, so that's why their ideas get to the top. And women, and you even kind of refer to this, women often start off saying, oh, I'm sorry to say this, or, you know, I apologize if this is stepping on any toe. Like women are almost like more apologetic when they're trying to break through the the the, the noise and become the signal. Uh, so so is, it, is it an idea of becoming more like men or being just more fearless? I think it's being more fearless and being just more, just being good at what you do. But think of the history of how women have come into the workplace. I mean, they had to, they had to step toe their way around the rules. They didn't, no one gave them the rule book and said, here's, here's the rules we haven't told you about, you know, here, here you go. So women had to figure their way out of work. And it's now we've got several generations of women who've been climbing up the ladder in corporate America. Um, So hopefully we're over that feeling of needing to act like a man and to just act like yourself and be good. Um, I think that's part of the challenge we're having in general right now. We're not bringing enough different perspectives into our companies. And so we say we want to innovate, but we don't bring people, not only men and women together, we don't bring more creative people. I think I, my story represents what it's like to be more creative in a company. Um, we don't bring people with different backgrounds. Uh, I'm also in the book, I talk about being an introvert. That means I'm naturally more quiet. Um, than than others, and there's a place for people like us in in companies. And really, business is a tough. It's growing up to be a tough extrovert. You know, hard charging. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't mean you're less competitive. And I think that's part. Hopefully, part of the story I, I share. Well, it, what you just said was very interesting. That um, you know, the the storytelling aspect. More people to to bring in more uh, people to tell their stories. Because a lot of this book, you emphasize over and over again. It's not about the numbers. It's not about the profits. If you and and you're not saying this in this wishy-washy non-capitalist way, because 
Jeff Ilmelt and other people always reminded you, no, we need to make billions of dollars to, that's how we judge success. But your point was always, is that telling the story first is how you're going to get to the billions of dollars in profits. Yeah, people just want to, there was a story I share, you know, in one of the meetings where, you know, just tell me how I can get people to get up every morning and make 10% profit. Well, you can't, right? Who gets up every morning? Some people maybe get up every morning and go, yay, I'm going to work for 10%. Most people want to know, like, why am I doing this? Okay, I have to provide for my family. I want to do whatever my goals are, but... You want to feel like there's a story. I mean, why do you? Why does the company you you work for do what it does? What, what customers is it going after? And I just time and again we know story is what unites us as humans. It's been around since the beginning. Why do we think that doesn't matter at work? That suddenly we leave that part of us alone. Customers want to know who made the stuff, who the people were who thought of it, what brings them to work, why do they care? And again, we we just think, yeah, just give me the numbers, just just make it about the numbers, and then we're surprised when we lose customers or we lose employees because it's just about the numbers. You know, and and it's interesting. You um, so after nine eleven, many companies, many big industrial companies in particular, were affected, and GE, which makes jet engines, and of course the airline industry was affected. G was naturally concerned how the events of 9-11 would affect them. You were in charge of their marketing or messaging then, and uh, uh, you guys were sort of the first out of the gate with a really empowering message that GE essentially helps build America, and you, you need us. And the question is, how important is it for a company like GE? And you, you answer this in the book, but I'm still curious. How important is it for a company that doesn't really sell directly to consumers, which Jeff Immelt argues with you about, to to make this message? Like, I'm watching TV and I see an ad about GE. Do I really care? Yeah. Well, I don't know if you care. I hope you do. But I think that is the question. I would get that a lot. I remember one CFO like, no one's going to buy a wind turbine from, from watching that ad. Well, they might. Not directly. I mean, it's not like a number at the bottom, 1-800-WIND-TURBINE, I'm going to have a wind farm in my backyard. No. But um, part of the reason you do that is you are telling your story for a number of, for all the different people who do business with you. Uh, if, it, if business were so easy, you only called one person and said, book my order, you wouldn't need to do that. But many people, especially in complicated businesses like a GE, many people weigh in on what, if, how you're going to purchase a train, a plane, a, whatever you're making. And so partly you're telling your story to get the decision makers at the client companies in, on board. You want employees to come and work there and say, choose your company versus another. In a public company, you have shareholders who you want them to buy your stock. So there are a lot of reasons why you have to tell your story. And it's this notion I talk about, about sort of mind share before market share. And it's this idea of getting out ahead of your story a bit and getting people comfortable with who you are and what you do. You're trying to find a connection. And you're just carving this little tiny pixel in their brain, just a little tiny piece of real estate up there in a cell in your brain to say, ah, I have a good connection with GE. I remember them. It's sort of like the... it sort of like reminds me of the IBM story that you won't get you won't get fired if you buy from IBM. Right. So so everybody learns to trust. It's about IBM, trust. And it becomes a catchphrase it, even. And it's about surprising people. I mean, you know, if you just show up in financial publications, they're expecting to show up. If you show up in a 
um, a, a late-night comedy show talking about helping young scientists get going, then that surprises people. They don't expect to see you there. Uh, we told a lot of stories um, going after the passion base uh, in industry. For example, my favorite one is telling stories about how trains work. And um, there's a whole passionate group of people. They don't all work in the industry. They're called foamers. They foam at the mouth because they love trains so much. You may be one. I sometimes think I might be one. I, you know, it brings out the little boy in everybody playing with trains. And so we spent a lot of time telling great stories about how trains are built, showing famous routes they were going on, because you're trying to build goodwill and get ahead and an advantage. When someone makes that decision, they may not even be able to articulate, oh, I know GE has the best train, train engines, but they're probably remembering a great story they heard about it, an emotional connection. Yeah, and I guess I guess when you put it that way, like, oh, let's get a small piece of mental real estate. If you, if, if you actually do the math on the people, there's 300,000 employees yeah. of GE, then every one of them is close with, let's say, 10 to 15 exactly. other people. And then you have all the customers, which so yeah. another, you know, let's say, thousand decision makers and all thousands. of their families. Yeah thousands and then there's all the shareholders yeah. which is another millions yeah millions so it actually you are saying to all of them hey we're okay you're okay with us yeah. don't panic and so although it's a hard thing to test like no one will know how GE did if you didn't put out those messages I think that's why it's almost um that's where the argument is because yeah. there's no way to— you can't prove it empirically. You can't judge success. Right. And there, luckily, technology has given us the means where you can do direct, direct marketing for certain occasions, and that's good. But it's not always. You still have to build your presence in the world. You have to let people know what—you have to make a connection with people. Yeah. And that takes a long time, and it's often—doesn't have to be expensive, but it's often what people think you don't have to worry about because it seems soft. I think it's the most essential thing. Yeah, no, I, I I agree. I think right. I mean, people know your story, right? They they come to you because they like your podcast, they like the content you put out. But my guess is, they just stick with you because they know your personal story. They understand you standing out on the sidewalk with your suitcase or whatever those moments are you've shared with people. I bet you, if you were to go and maybe you've done this and map kind of what people remember, it's those real human connections to you. Companies are no different. It's true. It's like I could write. I think I've written over. 3,000 posts on my website. And it's those ones that are real kind of distinct points that people connect with. That's the ones people always stop me on the yeah. street and say, yeah. oh, I read that one you did. And uh, have you written anything else? Yeah. And I go, yeah, another 3,000. Yeah, they're saying like, I'm like James, right? I'm like him. He's like me. And I think companies are made up of people and we forget that. So I think you want people to say, ah, they're people. One of my favorite stories was we took... Um, we, we went and took some aviation engineers uh, who had, were making jet engines, and they had never seen their work uh, in, in real life. I mean, they'd seen a jet engine, they'd been on a plane, but they'd never seen their engine take off on a plane. So we arranged for them to go to Boeing Field, and they stood there and they saw their handiwork, and literally it starts with hand and then amazing technology, and they cried. I mean, you have these grown adults sitting there crying because they're seeing their work like soar into the sky, like that's amazing. I think that's a, a a big problem in corporate America is that so it's kind of borrowed over from factory America yeah, in exactly. the 1800s where people don't realize they're not just cogs in the machine. Yeah. They actually, their product actually 
does something, they make something. Yeah. And uh, I think it's good when you when you connect employees to the final outcome. Yeah. I, I don't I, think that happens a lot. It doesn't. I remember um, in high, in college, I was working like a summer job, one of my summer jobs. I was working the line at the Rubbermaid factory in Winchester, Virginia. And we were doing these uh, trash cans that said like the Bahamas Princess or something. And, you know, like the line, we would sit there and we'd imagine what the people in the room must be doing. And I mean, I still remember it as a very vivid thing. Like you want to know whatever you're doing. You don't have to be making a jet engine, but whatever you're doing, like what's someone going to do with it? And how easy would it have been in that line for there to have been a story like these trash cans are going to this hotel and this is what the people who do, I don't know. I mean, I'm being a bit silly, but no, why actually, not? I'm, I'm daydreaming about it now. Yeah. Like you could imagine each trash can yeah, leads exactly. to another, exactly. it's almost like a, like a love boat sort of story. Yeah, it could be. That's fun. That could so, be a good content series. In fact, one of the things we wanted to do was have some of the, the manufacturing team write their names on some of the equipment. And, you know, almost like you could imagine technology, like here's James, here's a little story about yeah, James. Yeah, or send us a postcard. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you had a good trip yeah. with the, using this trash can. Yeah, and how proud would people think, how proud would they be to say, I did that, I got yeah. that back. So I do think those things matter. People want to know that they're doing something that that matters. But I could see how, like, you would get resistance. Like, let's say the, the CEO of the jet engine or the wind turbine division would be like, hey, I build wind turbines. Uh, well, uh, you know, my customer, I, I know my five customers. I just call exactly. them on the phone. Uh, they don't need to see this commercial. So I could see how you would you would get resistance. And they think it's wasted money, right? We'd rather spend right. the money doing something else. So how would you, what would be your standard response? I mean, <clears throat> obviously you're telling it to me with the mind share, you know, leads to market share, yeah. but how would you convince them to believe that? Well, I would try it small first. I mean, I wouldn't suggest someone go out and do a Super Bowl ad and spend all their money, which a lot of companies have done. I probably wouldn't do that first. Mm-hmm. I'd find small ways to to tell those stories. I would I would tell stories with customers and employees together, and maybe you'd feature it at a trade show. Maybe you'd do it in a local community context just to say, see, see how people reacted to that. You'd you'd perhaps give it to employees. Now now with digital technology, you know, you can spread this stuff out really cheaply and do it for pretty cheap uh, cheap amounts of money. So I would try to do it in a small way just to get them comfortable with the feedback. See, people didn't think we wasted money. See, people really resonated. See, we were able to get five more leads because of that. Um, so start to build it small and then ladder your way up to maybe telling a huge mammoth story somewhere. But that's what people want to feel comfortable, that what you're doing actually gets some kind of results. You know, and and what, what was, I, I should have, Looked this up before. What, what what's GE's revenues, or what were the revenues at their peak? At the peak when I was there, they were 130 billion dollars, over 130 billion dollars. Right. So the, the challenge of innovation, which which you you mention in the book, but like somebody listening to this, or or many people out there, could go off and start a company with a million in revenues or five million in revenues, and they'll sell it for 10 million, and that will change their life. Yeah. Like that's everything. But if if you did, did an effort which made a million in revenues, that is so inconsequential. It's, it's seeming like you're wasting people's time. Right. Yeah. So, so and you here you are, you're trying to be creative, you're trying to keep improving profits at a steady rate uh, and, and quote-unquote make the numbers. Uh, uh, it's how do, you, how do you innovate? How do you, how do you get yourself in a mindset to innovate where 
some really smart innovations just might not work because yeah. they might be hundred million dollar revenue innovations that are just worthless yeah. to a hundred thirty billion dollar revenue yeah. company. No, it's such a it's it's part is the tension of innovation in a big company. I mean, at one point in G's history when I was there, we we had to say we had to grow like a Nike or a Starbucks at the time every year. So it's like, okay, that's reasonable. Yeah, we're just going to spit out a Starbucks and keep growing. So you realize the task of that. I mean, you know, it takes these companies 20 or 30 years to get there. Um, What's your biggest innovation that did move the needle? The biggest ones were to have been clean tech. I mean, investing in getting into clean energy, you know, to the, ended up being to the tune of about $30 billion a year of new revenue. Because I guess, I guess not only did you sort of ride this trend of, um, you know, everyone's focused on, you know, climate change and global warming and so on. But it actually turns out to be good business. Yeah. Like if you're using less gas and more electricity, in the long run, that actually saves billions of it dollars does. of money. And that's a good one to use as an example to your question. Um, so you're dealing with a couple of things. One, you've got a good installed base of technology already in the market that people like, so you don't want to disrupt that. That makes people nervous. Right. So, so in this case, uh, let's let's let's, so, let's a call jet it, engine. Uh, uh, well, uh, or, or uh, let's use a inner clean inner, you know a jet engine or um, power generation at a local utility. It's burning gas, and suddenly you're saying, no, we're going to use energy from the sun and wind. But I've already got, you know, all my equipment and the utilities are using this and they like it. And so you have to keep that going. And so the new, the, the wind turbine or the solar panel is disruptive to that. And at first it sounds like kind of silly. Oh, yeah, that's so silly. We're going to get wind. It's never going to be as big as this. So you've got to work your way through all of those things. The other thing you have to do is you have to worry about your customers because that's usually a good alibi in a company. Oh, well, okay, I may agree the sun, power from the sun, that's great, but my customers will never go for it. And, you know, we can't get ahead of our customers. So one of the things we tried to do in the early days was say, let's do something we call dreaming sessions with our customers. Let's get them in. Let's peer out 10 years from now. We gave them kind of virtual currency, and I don't mean it wasn't, we weren't so prescient, we gave them Bitcoin, but it was, you know, okay, a virtual budget, okay? So if, if you were going to invest a million dollars in these three technologies for the future, what would they be? Why? Uh, how would you support GE doing that? And so you gave them some sense of control, and together we kind of mapped out a future of 10, 15 years together. So then you could come back and say, but you said you saw this happening, so now let's build that together. So I think it's just an ongoing effort to, one, you're telling stories, you're bringing other people in, and then you're testing and learning things. So we must have done, I don't know how many different iterations of trying to do solar, of trying to do energy storage, which is basically battery technology. And the goal there is you want to do them small enough so you're not losing a ton of money, but with enough money so that you're making progress. And that's another set of tension. So frankly, everywhere you look, there's tension. And everybody can fight everything. It's too small. Um, they don't want to look out 10 years. They don't want it to happen because they have to change everything they're doing. So that it, ideas are too small. People don't want to change. And there's no certainty. And look at the case of something like solar. I mean, we're, we're still, we know this potential to have solar energy, which is free. Basically, energy from the sun is free. We don't have to pay to pull it out of the ground. It's free. But we're not there yet right? Because it's not scaled yet. People are resisting it. There are a whole host of reasons this takes time. And then on top of all those arguments, yeah. there's the real world arguments of just your colleague might hate you. Yeah, which happens most of the time. <laughs> yeah, and they just don't want to do your idea yeah. beca just because. it's not their idea. So you were at GE like 27 years. Did you ever 
I mean, do you ever get sick of it? Yeah. And I would find just when I was about ready, just, I'm done. I'm done with this. Why am I fighting these fights? Just about to give up, things would start to come together. And I think that's part of the dilemma. I mean, things take time. I shared some stories in the book about working at NBC when the digital transformation started. I mean, take yourself back to YouTube, um, and YouTube was just erupting on the scene, and people at NBC were panicked, and media were panicked, right? It's like, these people play, they have videos of cats playing the piano. We don't know how to do that. And uh, it's an equal part like, oh, that's so cute. And then the other part, like, panic, like, we don't know how to do that. And we tried so many ways to do our own version of, of video online. Um, in the end, uh, for the NBC team, it came in partnering with News Corp to create something that's become quite successful in Hulu. Right, and if you didn't partner with News Corp, like let's say you decided to do Hulu on your own and then bring in partners, yeah. I think to your point in the book, maybe it wouldn't have worked out so well because the fact that Hulu had two parents... Um, Gave them some independence. Yeah. Because they could play off each other, I guess. Exactly. And it also meant we got out of that. Yeah, but I don't like your idea. It was like, we're going to, these two companies joining together, we're going to make it happen and we're going to put it outside of the mothership. We're going to go find a great founder. And we found it in Jason Klarman, who's just was amazing. And as a founder of Hulu, we're going to like, we're going to let someone else do it because we realize we, we're going to fight internally and we're going to get can't get out of our own way I, I remember there was one time like the team I worked with we had put together this amazing video player and we spent a ton of money even back then it was a lot of five money million five million dollars so you have a good memory and we we're like okay Jason you have to use this you have to use this video player and he's like no it's it's horrible it's clunky why would I do that I'm about good user experience if he grew up in the system if he was coming from NBC or News Corp he would have had to use that player um, or we would have thought about it, to your point. They would have been, no, that's the News Corp player, and I want the NBC player. No, the NBC player is better than the News Corp player. You would have had those fights this way. You just said, let somebody else have the ability to kind of rise above that. And so I think you need those moments where you're trying to pick yourself out of those. those you're too close to it is really what happens. And so, so you were instrumental in kind of, um, you know, kicking off Hulu and, and creating that partnership and... Uh, you know, it's Hulu became, I would say, more of a competitor to like a Netflix or an Amazon right. Prime than a YouTube. Exactly. YouTube's more still everybody's uploading their own video, yeah. videos of themselves, and Hulu's more, almost like its own channel. Yeah, it's a Netflix competitor. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, now there's original programming on Hulu, so there's shows that are not coming from Fox yeah. or NBC or any channel. Uh, where do you think, you know, just given your extensive experience in, in media, again, you were. What was the highest title you had at NBC? I'm president of Integrated Media. Yeah, so so where do you think media in general is going? Like, our local affiliates going to serve? Our TV stations going to survive with it with with all these you know streaming services out there? Well, I think I I'm a big believer for every trend there's a counter trend. So just when you're about ready to give up on local TV, somebody will say, "No, we miss that. We need we still need local news. It may not look exactly like it looks now, but I think look at radio." Um, I mean, you're, we're doing this podcast, right? Uh, I think there was a, many a times when people were like, audio's dead. Now audio's having this amazing resurgence. Sure. So I think what happens with media is the pie gets bigger and more competition and the slices get smaller. So we're all, you know, so the, the presence that local TV stations had is much more narrow because you're competing with people's time. They're like, do I listen to James' podcast or do I watch my local news? And So, so what happens though, like, like, 
30 or 40 years ago, you know, the top show on TV might get 30 or 40 million viewers a week. Now the top show on TV, which will be one of the 20 law and orders or CISs out there or CSIs, whatever, they get like eight, nine million views. If they're doing well. Yeah. Yeah. If they're doing really well. Like that's yeah. the top 10. Yeah. Uh, uh, that number is just going to get small. I don't even know what the average show on Hulu gets or Netflix. It's got to be... And much we probably won't know because Netflix isn't going to let us know that. I mean, I'm sure they let their investors know a little bit of that. I mean, I guess other than Stranger Things and some of the top originals, I mean, there's 200 original shows on yeah. Netflix. They can't be getting all... They can't be getting a million views. Yeah. This has to be really small. Uh, CNBC, to its credit, was able to build a nice business in the NBC um, umbrella because of the high demographic, yeah. sponsors would pay a lot, but they would but only get like- still very small with all the competition they've had. They'd get like 50,000 views yeah. on a popular show. 50, yeah. 000, I say views, it's, but you know, you, what do you even call them now? Like yeah. watchers, yeah. What do you viewers. Call them? Um, but what's, I feel like everything's getting smaller and smaller, it more is. niche. Uh, so if you're a media company, you need to have more pieces of that pie. You need to have more of them, or you just have to accept that you're gonna, you're, you're dealing with a smaller, a smaller, audience, a smaller, you know, to be very targeted. I like that as a marketer because it means you're able to really have a relationship and a much more engagement with your audience. So there are some benefits of that. There are different ways you can start to build models and create different opportunities with that base. I, I personally think that's a healthier way to build a business. <clears throat> probably. And also you could probably, it's as a marketer, you can measure success better. Yeah. Because if there's only three competitors <coughs> and they're all getting you know, they're all changing positions as number one, two, and three, like yeah. NBC, NBC, ABC, NBC, and CBS did for years, then, okay, the head of marketing can't really, it's just a nice job. He yeah. can do a few things and maybe the needle moves a little bit, but there's lots of places to blame if it doesn't work out. But I think now if you're marketing um, a bunch of TV shows and they all fail, something's going wrong. Yeah, and that's, I shared in the book, that's what we got wrong when I was at NBC and we acquired this big acquisition in iVillage, which was all about a community of women. And I think, again, like, we we just, we didn't do it right. We didn't integrate it well, but this idea of starting with the community and back to your CNBC example, I mean, so CNBC is now at this place where their community is people, not just finance people, but largely people who are analysts, um, work for hedge funds, do trading, and it's a very vibrant community for that. And that may be a viable business for them. So I think that we have to get our head around what does it mean. So back to your local television station, what does it really mean to be local? Like, what does it mean to be a New Yorker? It's probably not even enough to be a New Yorker. There's five boroughs, you know, where it, it may, I have to be like Upper West Side. I have to be even the neighborhood block of Upper West Side. And how does somebody do that and replicate it? That's the challenge, I think. I wonder if, um, and then I want to get back to your book, but this is just something I'm curious about. I wonder if the TV model, which is basically still like, you know, a cable line comes into your house and then offers you a bunch of services on a big screen, like not only channels now, but Hulu and Netflix and other streaming services. I wonder if that model is dying a little bit and instead it'll be replaced by a model of, oh, this website has a huge amount of traffic. So that means they can make shows. So for instance, Uber, which is not a TV service by any stretch of the imagination, they produced, you know, with Spike Lee, they produced a TV series about drivers in Brooklyn. Yeah. And that's a TV show on the Uber app. And so I wonder if that's going to change a little bit how we view yeah. media.
I think I, I agree with you. I think every company is becoming a media company, is some of what you're saying. And I also think we're seeing this things are breaking apart. And then then the natural is wait, I can't keep up with all this. To what you're saying, there's so much content. So there'll be a new group that comes through, and I predict reaggregates things. I mean, in some ways you could argue Spotify is a new model of that. Mm. Why couldn't Uber be that or anybody who can figure out the way to build it around your interests or your specific efforts. So I predict the future will look like the past in some respects. People come together or the, the models sort of aggregate things and centralize them. Then they get, they get disaggregated. Then somebody else comes up with a new way of bringing it together. You have to discover. You need someone to curate it. You need to find all this stuff. I think that will be as much a premium as anything. Um, and it'll be a new model. Yeah, it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting if people tune into stuff like that because search is hard. Like, uh, I would not know about some of the original shows on Hulu if it weren't for, you know, if somebody was a podcast guest here, right. then I'm going to check out a show on Hulu. I suddenly would realize. So, so maybe you're the new recommender and the one that's going to aggregate what to watch, what to see, because I'm attracted to your way of thinking. Uh, much right, more. We'll talk after yeah, the show. Much more than idea. I would be uh, NBC telling me what to do. It. I, I know you. I know the way you think. I'm, I, and so I think that is more the way people are going to develop these models, more around the the curation and the community. Yeah, I mean, well, you look at like, um, you know, even companies like Craigslist really just started as cur curated lists that yeah. Craig, exactly. Craig Newmark would just send out to his friends, and they would share it, and then. It suddenly became this huge business. Yeah. Or what was another one? Um, Angie's List. There's a couple like list companies. Yeah. That started I mean the, out the skim. Way. I mean, there's there's a lot of really contemporary models that are starting with that kind of community base and curation as their model. Yeah. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, your your the way you view idea generation because I think it's not only applicable to a hundred billion dollar company coming up with ideas, but even an individual coming up with ideas about how to reinvent themselves. You've reinvented yourself quite a few times and wh whether by choice or by necessity, you know, going from NBC and media to GE and suddenly uh, you become experts on, you know, GE lighting, uh, all, all the GE products because you're running GE licensing. So you had to deal with everything. I, I don't know. Obviously you couldn't become a PhD level expert on all these things, but you must have spent an enormous amount of time just trying to, to learn and then come up with brand new ideas for each one of these divisions. That seems like a hard task. Yeah, well, I, I think the beauty of the kind of role I had, for me at least, was that I got to look across the whole company and connect things. I didn't have to go really deep. I didn't have to be the deep healthcare expert because they had those. My expertise was more the pattern recognition and seeing where things were alike and new opportunities between them. So clean, hey, this is a company that could be about clean energy because we have three different businesses that this potentially is part of their future. Hey, we could make this about consumer health because it's NBC meets healthcare. So I was in the position and the people I worked with to be able to do that. I think companies need both. And I worry a little bit right now that we're putting so much emphasis on deep expertise that we miss those connections and those opportunities. Um, companies are becoming much more focused, which I think is a good thing, but I worry that they're not, they're not picking their head up and looking at where they can connect in other ways. I think even individuals, it's so easy for us to pigeonhole people. Oh, you went to law school, so you have to be a lawyer. Oh, you spent 15 years as a dentist, so the rest of your life you're gonna be a dentist. And people don't wanna do the same yeah, thing for 40 years anymore. 
And you made lots of changes in your, in, in your life, even though, you know, you stayed at GE a while, you had many, many different jobs there, which allowed you to kind of get the experience to rise up to the top there. And I think uh, uh, in the middle of the book, you have this section on kind of brainstorming or generating ideas. And I just wanted to kind of run through some of these because okay. I think, I think, I think idea generation is, is, is an, is something that's very attractive to people because they're driving into work, they're coming up with ideas, they don't know which ideas are good, or they don't know how to execute on ideas, or they don't even know how, you know, what are just new innovative ways to think about things. And you list a, a bunch of different ways, uh, you know, and you call this section seeing, seeing the future. But I actually like this section before, seeing threes, where you talk about how if you see something three times, this is interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's not very scientific, but I have this just rule of thumb going on threes. And first time I'll see something, I say, and it catches my attention. Oh, that's interesting. Then I'm out discovering, looking at things, um, and I see it at something similar. Oh, that's, is that a coincidence? Huh. Third time, I declare it a trend. I mean, it's not scientific. It's not like I've got McKinsey ordering, giving me a report and saying this is a valid trend. It's just, I'm seeing enough of this. So again, you know, um, uh, I, I was with a group of um, I was with a group of beverage people recently, and they were talking about how in their history they had been disrupted by craft beer. Um, it wasn't like one day the brewers of America just woke up and said we're going to make craft beer. They were all along, and if you went to two different cities, you probably could have seen them. If you went to three different cities, you would have said something is happening here. We did that with the maker movement, people who were hacking in their garage, making things that we did, water purification, gas, uh, solar panels. And you start to see enough of that. You go to Brooklyn, you go to Portland, you go to Austin. You go, wait a minute. People are making the stuff we make in their garage. Like, how long before they can get really good at it and stuff smaller and cheaper and better? Well, I like how you then started contests. Yeah. So, which is similar to how um, Peter Diamandis with the, with the uh, X Prize, yeah. Yeah, how he kind of, you know, ten million dollars to yeah. if you could launch a rocket into space. But you did it on much, much more granular. Yeah, we were too. We were too cheap. We're not. We don't have Peter's budget. Your but. first prize was like seven thousand dollars <laughs> yeah. for like a new jet engine or whatever. Like, what was the first prize yeah. you did? Well, inspired by Peter, but yeah, we did. We did a lot of challenges. One was we just we were looking at three D printing and metals and how do we do this? And and so we said. We had great scientists, but we don't know everything. Let's see who else is doing it out there. And it was a bit of an internal challenge, too, because there was a bet that we would never find anybody as good as our own people. We're like, okay, let's see. So we put out a challenge. We picked a really dumb part, meaning it, it had been, it didn't have anything sophistication. It wasn't competitive. It wasn't like another guy would get it and run, you know, create a competitive breakthrough. And the teams had done everything they could. The challenge was it needed to weigh less because if you take off in a plane, the more weight, the more fuel it burns. So we said, hey, can you make this dumb part? I think it weighed like five pounds or something. Can you make it light? Can you redesign it with digital design and 3D printing in metal? And we put the idea out there. $7,000 was the bounty. And we said, who can come up with a good prototype? Thousands of ideas later, we picked one from an Indonesian kid. Well, he was like 20, but a young person compared to the people at GE who were doing it. And he had come up with this idea that was 80% lighter than anything the experts was, were able to figure out. How did he know that it would be able to handle the heat and so on? Well, he it was a proto. He just did a design. He just mm -hmm. had a different way of of conceptualizing it. And our guys then had to go back and validate that it would be you know test worthy, that the FAA would approve it, and all that. But he just was a spark. To 
to give us a different way of thinking. And so sometimes that's what you have to advocate for. And if your head's down, you're just focused on what you know, and you're not picking it up and saying, who else out there might be doing it a different way? You're still making the dumb old parts. And meanwhile, there's a 20-year-old student in Indonesia who's figured out a better way. So so this this goes to the... That message is almost like for the large company where everybody's got their job and it's hard to to move the needle. You you inject this outside creative yeah. force in, and and you do that repeatedly throughout the book. And I, I have some questions about that. But then, um, first on your on your threes thing, uh, it, it reminds me of a, another person who said the exact same thing. So Whitney Cummings, who's mm-hmm. a, a, a well known comedian, yeah, she said if if you think about something three times in a week. You have to write it. Like there's going to be something <laughs> yeah. there that yeah. th- that's worth writing a joke about or whatever. Yeah. So it's related. So you're you're on to something with that. Yeah. Um, but the this section, seeing the future, which is all about idea generation. Maybe we can go over some of these. Like like you say, opposition. Assume the opposite of convention. Yeah. So some of these are just um, scenarios. I, I like the idea of just kind of letting your imagination go and in a disciplined way. So opposition, like everything, imagine you wake up tomorrow and everything you take for granted is true is totally the opposite. I mean, today, if you worked in a plastic straw company and suddenly like you're thinking, well, what could be wrong with plastic straws? I love plastic straws. Well, suddenly you find out they harm the fish in the ocean and we can't have plastic straws. Well, that's the opposite. Um, If you woke up and something you absolutely took as a given in your company went away, what would you do? It's so, a good yeah. mental exercise just to think what would happen if that if that happened. So plastic straws, let's think about that for a yeah. second. Well, what what can we do? What could we do? Well, you'd say, well, we're in the plastics business, so do we you know, do we just start making something else? Do we stop making straws? But our straw business is really good. You better have be have been out there, I think, figuring these things out and hoping to see hey, plastics, there's a lot of people taking action against plastics. Hopefully you're not surprised one day um, that you just wake up. Um, so hopefully you would have done it earlier. That would have been my first thing. I wonder, like, uh, what's what's an area now where you could think that this sort of, you know, opposition technique well, might work? I mean, pretty much every, I mean, you, I don't well, know. Well, like we just spoke about media, and you, and you talked about Uber. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you, if you have a, a, a taxi license in New York City or any city, and you thought that taxi license was only going to appreciate in value for the next 20 years as it had, and the banks had backed it, and then suddenly Uber scales. And again, you knew it was coming, but you discounted it. Um, So those are the kind of, I think those are good exercises for yourself. You can be an independent contractor on your own. You don't have to have a big company to do some of these things. I like best case, worst case. I mean, just you're trying to, you know, what's the best possible thing that could happen? What's the worst possible thing that could happen? And then kind of modulate between those things and you you get some pretty creative solutions in terms of how you're going to react. It, it reminds me actually of when, when you brought in um, Eric Reese, who, who, wrote, who wrote The Lean Startup, and uh, you have him challenge members of GE about the time it takes to build a new product. Yeah. And you, and he wants to build the minimal viable product, and it goes from five years to six months when yeah, everybody starts yeah. brainstorming. Because he, he basically says, well, do you have to have uh, something that you're going to sell to all of your customers? Yeah. Well, do you have to recreate the whole thing? Can you just recreate a different thing and find one customer? Yeah. And then you could start to see if that could scale. Um, I, I, I like that way of thinking. Yeah. It reminds me of a lot of um, software companies Sometimes there are things you don't have to 
make all in product form yet. You could leave have most software, but some things you're still doing exactly. manually or whatever. You could you can remove uh, abilities from yourself and see what ideas exactly. come up. I mean, it's a simple taking things away is what you're talking about. Do you need all the on your remote control? Do you need all those buttons? Do you use all those buttons? Why do you have them all? So, I mean, I think it's just always good to challenge yourself. Using the Eric Reese example you talked about, I mean, it was amazing the assumptions that people had that were holding them down. You know, they, they were all about, but we have to have every feature for every customer ready to go today. Well, are they going to pay for it? Did they ask for it? Did they have a use for it? So there's just a lot of assumptions we make in business and life. And I think that's part of what I love about these scenarios. And really, it's just I'm a good worrier. I'm a big worrier. So I think I've just naturally learned how to do that, to just overthink and think through every possible scenario. So you're not surprised. And it also, I think, encourages you to be creative. How can you practice understanding what your assumptions are? Because the problem with the assumptions are is that they're you assume them. Right, exactly. You don't know that there's another way. Yeah, well, I think asking, you know, if I woke up tomorrow and, you know, I don't know, I do a podcast and I woke up tomorrow and I lost my voice, what would I do? Now, someone would become a bit fanciful, but what would you do? Well, maybe you'd become a good mime or something. I don't know, you'd start to mime your, we'd be, we'd be doing it without voices and people would be seeing us in a whole different way. So I think if nothing else, these are good creative exercises. Even just to carve time with your teams, just to, to do that, Invite people in if you can. It doesn't take a money. It just get somebody who has a different way of thinking to come in and say, "Well, why are you doing it that way?" Yeah, or or also practice. You know, let's say building assumptions is, or let's say figuring out what your assumptions are is almost like a muscle that you have to practice. So just simply, you know, in in the case of GE, figuring out what all your assumptions are. So if you're building a product that you can't sell for ten years. Are people still going to want this right, product in exactly. 10 years? Are there going to be competitors that can beat you in those 10 years? And it's not unreasonable to think that someone, some small startup could could beat you or a new form of energy yeah. or a better battery could be discovered or whatever. You, you have to assume it's going to. I mean, there was that great debate earlier in the year between Warren Buffett and Elon Musk where Buffett was like, I only invest in businesses with a moat. And Musk is like, you're crazy. It's all about the speed of innovation. And... I mean, the whole moat strategy is questionable for some companies because supply chains being innovated now, digi the digitization of industry, there's a lot of things that are questioning that model. But if you've built your whole portfolio saying, I only invest in businesses that have a good moat, meaning competitive, you know, we do something that competitors can't catch up to, well, what if they could? Yeah, well, I look at the entire hotel industry right. versus Airbnb. Exactly. That's Within five years, the mode disappeared. Yeah, and that that was Musk's point about the automakers, right? Well, I mean, maybe right now he's being a bit challenged, but what if there's a different way to make a, a car? What if there's a different way to make a rocket? I mean, challenging NASA. I'm going to use a reusable rocket. I'm not going to burn them all up. I'm going to actually have it come back down and reuse the rocket again. That's a different kind of assumption. Yeah, so it's so that's that's interesting. So I think I think that it's a good idea to kind of exercise that assumption muscle and yeah. keep figuring out what the assumptions are. Even whether you're bringing someone from the outside at first or just for the individual, what are my assumptions about my job, my career, my retirement, my, you know, my ability to be a world famous singer even though I've been a dentist for 30 years. 
you know, I think we assume a lot of things about what we, what we yeah. can and well, can't do, what our boundaries are. You mentioned dentist twice, and I have to tell you, a great inspiration for me, my father was a dentist. Oh, and I, I think I forgot that. No, I, but I, here, because I your think... Your mom if, was a mayor. <laughs> yeah, she was an unofficial mayor as a teacher, but if my dad had assumed he was only a dentist, he would not be what he is now, which is an artist. And I saw, so he, you asked me some, how do you learn some of these things? I saw in my father, somebody who was willing to be, go from being a dentist to having a passion point and becoming a writer about a kind of art history he liked to becoming an artist, making that kind of art for himself. Um, and so I love that about, you can be, you know, an artist who thinks he's a dentist, who thinks he's an artist. Why and, not? And I think, I think permission and you mentioned this yeah. uh, in the book, not in this section, but in other sections. Permission is an important thing. People yeah. need to know they do have permission to find out where they where they think their boundaries are and go a little past them. Why do you think so many people are afraid to not go past those? Like they say, no, this is the way I do things. Because they're afraid. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Certainly in work, we don't want to talk about that we're afraid. We don't know the answer. We don't know how to do it. We don't, we're going to feel uncomfortable. We don't look stupid. All those things. And we bring it to work and we behave badly. We, you know, we try to show that we're, we're fearless. Back to where we started. I'm fearless. I have no fear in business. I am fearless. Well, that's crazy. Of course you do. You know, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, back in, I'm going to go back to like 1999 or 2000. So I was running a, a venture capital firm and I had a, a, and I was an internet guy, a software guy. So I thought I was like super smart and nothing. I was, I was actually afraid to ask questions because I didn't want to appear Dumb. stupid. Yeah. When one of my partners was a banker, and I learned so much from him in that he would just he would just sit there and they would go through their presentation. And then he'd back up and say, "Listen, treat me like I'm a five year old. I don't really understand anything you said." Go through this, this, this. How does it work yeah. again? Like, yeah. what are you doing? What, what's going on? And he just asked so many questions, and I would be like arrogantly laughing on the inside, like, "Oh, what an idiot!" And then, but I was just the worst investor possible <laughs> back then. And I learned that to be good, you have to act bad in a weird way. Well, you, you have, have to, to act, act like you, you know. You have to learn. You have to yeah. want. To, uh, yeah, I think you have to ask to learn, not ask to to prove what you know. Right. And I think that's what happens. Why do people ask for permission? Because they're afraid to try it. They're afraid to take a risk. So it's easy to say, oh, I don't have enough budget. You know what? My boss won't let me. I know that guy or that woman. She, they're real jerks. They, they're not going to let me. Oh, my board will never let me. The investors in this startup, they will never let us do that. And many of those may be true excuses, but often it's because I don't know how to do it. I'm afraid to tell someone I don't know what that is. Um, so I think that, so I just like this, to me, that's the foundation of why I felt I had to write this book. Just I saw so many people, big companies, small, feeling like they needed somebody to tell them it was okay. Um, even the fearless, you know, founder CEOs, right? They only know so much. Um, they have a board. They're always they use the board for a reason why they can't do certain things. So I think this is a human trait. I do. Well, and I think what's catapulted you from success to success in your career—not that you didn't have volatility, but you 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 know kept moving up the the hierarchy in various ways and getting opportunities and offers is that you almost had to coach executives to give themselves permission to try new things. And in doing so, that forced you to, 
to, to, to apply the same advice to yourself. Yeah. You had to ask all the questions to understand their businesses, and then you had to challenge all your assumptions first so you could challenge theirs. You had to give yourself permission so you could give them permission, and that kind of set got you to the point where you could be like, okay, the next day I'll be vice chairman of yeah, well, the, the it was most just famous that easy. company in the world. It was exactly that easy. But you're right. I mean, partly you're getting out of your own way because you're saying I'm just, for me, I, I was introverted. I was, I had confidence issues early in my career. Even still today, I struggle with those. But it's that uh, I, I, I know I have a good idea. I want to ask a question in this meeting, but I hold myself back. I, I, it's too stupid. So what, they're going to think I'm stupid. So now, what what changed? Like, what makes you switch and say, "Okay, I'm going to say this." In fact, you would even write down, you, yeah. "I'm going to say something I, in each I meeting." I would say because I, I do my homework. I'm going to come in with a point of view. Like, what are you good at? Like, I come to this. They hired me for a reason, so I should come in with a point of view. So you have to get out of your own way. You have to give yourself permission. If I sat there and waited for my boss to call on me, he or she wouldn't do that. In fact, I share a story of my boss Jeff Immelt at one point saying, like. Why do I have you in these meetings? You don't say anything. Like I expect you to show up more. Like that was unique and and rare from for people to say that, and I really caught m- my attention. But you also need to take that feedback from people and say like you're in your own way. You're in your own way. So I so what's valuable there also is the the what you just said. Come in with a point of view. Yeah. Because in order to do that, you have to do a lot of research. You do. Because if everybody in the else in the meeting is an expert at what they do. Coming in with a unique point of view requires a lot of work. Yeah, and confidence because if everybody's talking like the financial, you know, the ROI of this and they're talking finance and you're not a finance person, you feel like I can't, I'm a marketer. They're going to think I'm an idiot. They don't value what I'm saying. But you come in and you go, but no, okay, my expertise is I know the market. I know the trends that are happening in there and they don't. So my job, if I'm part of this team, is to contribute what I know and what they need me to know. So... I shouldn't be sitting here trying to tell them how to do better math. I'm actually not good at math. So let me come in with what I know. Here's a trend. Here's my three. (laughs) I've seen this trend. I've done homework on it. I'm confident of this. I'm more confident of this than I know how to, you know, do gap accounting. And, and, And along with that confidence, and you're sort of alluding to it, it seems like you have to come in with a story. You have to come with a story. Um, and I think people too often try to be like everybody else. And um, it's about asserting your difference. And look, I had to learn. It sounds like great. Like, oh, I just, I grew up in some flower and just came out this way. But no, I mean, you have to learn how to do that. Um, it's enough of that, like sitting in meetings and not saying anything or having people think, well, what's marketing? You're dumb. You never say anything. Enough of that where you have to come back and go, but no, I do know my story. So there's a little bit of you kind of getting pissed off. You're kind of like, wait a minute, I'm angry. I got to I gotta get in here and act. And so it's a little bit of that rebel that you're trying to summon a bit in, the, in companies. And there has to be a little, uh, not just confidence, but fearlessness in that you might say something that actually is stupid. Yeah, and not beat yourself up too much. I'm horrible about that. And I see that, you know, people will come back to you like three days later, oh, I feel so bad I said that. And meanwhile, you've you've moved on. You have to move on. And we all do that. We all, you know, but you move on. People don't remember that. Yeah, it's... uh... I wonder if that's really true that people don't remember. Well, they remember the dumb things, I'm sure. The really dumb things. But also, I think you, I, I believe you just sort of, or you come back and go, oh, what I said was so dumb. Can you believe I said that? 
You know, I wasn't thinking, and here's what I meant to say. I, I think you also just have to be open about these things. Laugh at yourself. Can you believe how dumb I was when I said that? Oh, my gosh, I was really silly. Um, and instead, we try to be like, you know, all, all cool and bravado about it. And so I think I'm maybe arguing for just a bit more authenticity about how we do these things and say when we know it and say when we don't. I need help. I don't know the answer here. Can you help me? So, so I want to get back to this list of uh, idea generations. Some of them are, are related, like you mentioned, um, worst case scenario, which is similar to opposition. We, we sort of talked about it. Uh, parallelism. Maybe describe what that is. Well, I'm, I'm, with parallelism, it's just imagine that some, you know, it's sort of like the sliding doors kind of thing. You know, you're, you're going down one path. Imagine if you went down a totally different path with a business idea. Um, what would it look like? What would it be? I mean, again, I'll go back to what if energy was generated from the sun versus via coal? What would that look like? It's the same kind of process. You're just going down, you're going down different paths to figure out how, how do you get there. So let's play with that for a second. Okay. So let's say New York City, Con Edison has their utility grid downtown, you know, the, the main central yeah. parts of it. What if you had real estate uh, that you bought a block away that was two or three blocks long and you put up tons of solar panels that just fed into the utility grid? I don't know anything about solar power. Would that generate be able to generate enough solar power to make a difference? Um, eventually it would. I mean, eventually if you had enough solar panels, you, you'd need the technology to get better. I mean, but why wouldn't you start a small a small path of that? I mean, it gets complicated because they're regulated industries and their local regulatory board says you can't spend more money to do that. So it actually gets complicated for some of these bigger, bigger concerns like utility. But why couldn't you create a test bed for that. I uh, was on the um, Innovation Council for New York City um, a couple of years ago, and one of the things we talked about were, 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 could you create a test bed for drones in New York City? So instead of just saying we can never have a drone in New York City because they're disruptive or whatever the issues are, well, couldn't we create a place where people could just test out use cases and you could start to create a parallel path of how a drone might work in New, in New York City? So it's easy to say you can't do that, but what if you created a parallel universe of a way to think about it? Hmm. Hmm. Um, time shift. Oh, time shift I love. If you were to go, um, you know, a lot of this is people always go back to the past and, you know, well, we can't do that because in like 1985 someone tried it and, and it didn't work. And, you know, well, what if, what if you knew what now what you know then? Can you go back in time and what would you do differently? Could you go forward and, and imagine what it looks like in the if, if everything were going you know, to take yourself 10 years into the future? As I said earlier, we did with, we were looking at clean technology. What what could it look like? Then work your way, work your way back. Um, I think we often just imagine we're stuck in these time, the, the time that we're in. So play with time as a, as a dimension. Um, why not? If you could do things faster. Uh, back to your point about if you could put a product out, you think it's five years, or what if you could put it out in six months? What if your constraint was you only had six months? It's like the those poor kids that were stuck in the cave in, in Thailand, right? Like people got very creative and let's find new ways. We only have a couple of days. So yeah, you, it would take you two years to do this. What if you only had two days? What mm -hmm. would you do? How would you do it? So what would be... I mean, I'm always thinking of, about media, but what, what's the sort of problem that you think is interesting to do a time shift exercise on? Yeah, that's a good one. Um, like, like, you're on the board of Nike. I should have mentioned that. Like, what's, you know, five years from now, what's, how are sneakers going to be different? 
Well, I, I mean, here's one, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of, I'm not sure it's really a time, a time shift one though, but I mean, what if, uh, you know, every retail company is now looking to get digital, right? Online commerce, how do you create the digital experience in the store? This is not really a time shift though, is my aunt, is what I'm going to give you. But what if suddenly consumers go, you know what, I want to go to a place where I never get a, di- I have nothing digital. I want just totally I want total analog experience. That's really more of an opposite example, I guess. Um, but no, that's interesting. It's more like, like in 2020, we want to be retro 2000. Exactly. And have like a sneaker store where the guy's just trying on a shoe, and there's no, you know, it's like an old fashioned cash register. Right. What it? What? What would that? Maybe that's an experience one because I the trends tell me I am totally overloaded. The last thing I want. Everybody's trying to get sensors and controls and everything. The last thing I want is that. Privacy is another good one, right? You're seeing, you're seeing that. That's really maybe an opposite, but um, I'm I'm sort of struggling a little bit on time. But the privacy is a good one, right? Where you've got right now, where people are seeking out uh, voice, they're seeking out personal assistants that are are privacy secured, browsers that are privacy secured that don't do tracking. So that's kind of for every trend. There's a counter trend. I think maybe the way to think about that. You know, it's funny about the privacy thing because I know this is a big debate. Like, and on the one hand. You want to see content and ads that fit your personality. On the other hand, it feels a bit weird that Alexa or Siri or Google Assistant might be listening to your conversations and then put up the ads, you know, for that. But I just had a weird experience today. Um, I got an email from a colleague, and normally I just I'm not very good at responding to emails, so normally I just wouldn't respond. But then Google now has these suggestions um, at the bottom, and. Uh, one of the suggestions was, uh, okay, thanks a lot. <laughs> and I realized, oh, I should probably, Google is advising me to be a little bit more polite to this colleague. Like Google was actually teaching me to be a little <laughs> bit funny. more of a better yeah. <laughs> colleague to somebody. By, with you a, train with Google the, well. Right, well, or Google's training me because yeah. Google's seen it from a million other yeah. examples. Yeah, like, exactly. oh, this, for, given the text in this letter, because Google doesn't know what the text is, yeah. it's just an algorithm. Given the text in this letter, Across millions of emails, the appropriate response seems to be, "Okay, I agree with you. Thanks a lot." Yeah, it gets smarter and smarter, doesn't it? it yeah, really and so is. that is like I had to think. Oh, that is how other people must respond if Google's recommending yeah, that to yeah. me. Yeah, but they're also so seeing, seeing your should. pattern. They're seeing your pattern as well, so they're able to toggle between you and everybody else. My as pattern well. is to do nothing. I don't <laughs> respond to emails. It's really bad. I mean, yeah, so I actually did click on they're that thing and responded, yeah. and now I feel like a better colleague as for it. So, but on the time shift thing, what do you, I, what do you come up with? I, I uh, okay, I'm thinking Nike. Yeah. What if I like everybody wears the Fitbit watches? Yeah. But I'm thinking Nike. What if in my shoes, that's how I really keep track of. Not only how many steps, but how much, you know, how much energy I'm using yeah, throughout the yeah. day, because that's better than the watch for yeah. telling me the shoes actually feel the whole body weight. What if it determines if my arch is okay? It could probably determine if my posture is okay. You yeah. know, depending on how I'm sitting no, on that's my a good show. One. You made me think. You, you may recall they did this, but they they designed this self lacing shoe based on Back to the Future. Oh, I didn't so know that's that. a really fun one, and it actually now has become a whole line for them of sort of um, assisted assisted product for people who don't have dexterity and maybe have Parkinson's disease, like Michael J. Fox, and you actually can't tie your shoes. So that's one where it really was a time travel project where they went took from Back to the Future the movie and created something that was a concept then, and in current day they could make it reality with technology. Well, okay, but yeah, now I'm even thinking. Um, because because you brought up Michael J. Fox with Parkinson's, I bet you there are many diseases that are 
very nuanced when they begin. Like yeah. you can't, they're, they're asymptomatic, but maybe a symptom would be, okay, if you take a whole category of people, you'll see that they, their pace changes once they start, before they start exhibiting symptoms of Parkinson's, maybe their pace slows by 5%. Yeah. And it might be worth, the shoe would notice that. It might be worth then notice, uh, notifying the owner of the shoe, hey, check the doctor. These are, yeah. the, these are the sort of diseases where you might not have any symptoms yet, but your pace has slown 3%, which is not noticeable, but we notice it. Yeah, yeah. I think, though, and I think technology is going to allow us to do that. And you made me think, I mean, if I if you spent any time in like upstate New York or other rural areas in the country, um, you see a lot of young people returning to farming and returning to country life in a way that um, the trends were all, everybody's going to move to the city, yet... I think that is a bit of time travel and a bit of opposition together where you'd start to think, hey, people actually want to return to farming. They I don't want to be city dwellers. They want to they want to return to a different time and they want to do things differently. So I don't know if that's time or opposition, but again, no, I, for every trend, there's a counter trend. I think what that is, is Beth Comstock. <laughs> I feel you brought up like the retro thing a couple of times. You think I'm a and, retro, and, I'm stuck in a... And, well, I think now that you've worked so hard in so many different jobs and your brain has had to like overstress yeah. itself. I think you want to go back to like, oh, I'm time. just going to wake up and I think look at right. the rainbow well over my lake. Knows. Yeah, <laughs> I, I have no rainbow over a lake, but I think there is something about that. But that, that's what I'm seeing out there. I do think people, as much as we see all the crazy technology, the fast pace, I do think people are looking for simpler experiences, simpler connections. So I, I think these are good exercises just to kind of try to stay ahead of the change and try to identify trends early. Yeah, so so um, I like this one, Strange, bre strange Bedfellows. Yeah. Well, that's, that's where just like who are, who are two people that could come together and make really crazy ideas. I mean, again, back in our day, Fox and News Corp coming together to, to seed something that became Hulu. Well, you're competitors. You know, I mean, Ken Aletta has that book out now, Frenemies. That was the big word at the time. You're a frenemy. So, like, what's the craziest group of people who could get together and create something amazing? Um, so I think that's the idea behind that one. What's just a really odd duo of people, companies, teams that could get together and come, you know, you see it a lot in music. You get sort of the old guard and the new guard coming yeah. together. Tony Bennett and Lady Gaga sing whatever. Or, or I was thinking of um, Aerosmith and Run DMC came together in, I guess, 1984 and created a rap version of the Aerosmith song, Walk This Way, which totally put rap yeah. into the mainstream as a multi-billion exactly. dollar industry. Aerosmith was my first concert I ever went to see. Really? I, yeah, I liked Aerosmith. Run DMC might have been my first. Is that, well, there we go, see? We, we were, we, there we go. Contemporaries. Yeah. Um, so, so what's next for you? I um, This book has been a bit of a bridge for me. I wanted to chronicle what I had seen and hopefully offer some encouragement. So I want to get the, into the world. That's immediately what's next. And I'm excited to be a beginner. I mean, I'm really starting to think of what, how do I start over again? I um, And I don't exactly know what that means. I'm sort of at this stage in life where I can hopefully take some wisdom that I've accumulated, certainly experience, and I'd like to just start again in some new way. So I think I'm going to reenter the workforce in a really different way. I mean, you know so many people in business. I could, I mean, even though this is sort of related to what you did, but and, and you're also so comfortable with media. I know you say you're you're quiet, but you're you're... Obviously not very. Um, <laughs> I've gotten over it. You could be 
you could do a, a, a talk show somewhere or, or, you know, you could have everybody, you know, everybody in industry could, would be on this show. Yeah, well, I, maybe. I mean, I, I do want to do more. I like, the book is brought out in me that I like to write. I had a co-writer, which which helpful. Now I have confidence, I think, that I could write something on my own, do something more. I love to, I'm a storyteller. I think at the heart, that's what I am. But I don't know. I, I, I've actually been starting to offer myself out to people I know just like, hey, I'll be an intern for the day. I just want to come and learn. Uh, I just want to learn. So I'm at that stage right now where I'm doing my pattern recognition, where I'm out and discovering. I do that for myself. I shared it in the book whenever I've gone into new jobs. I feel like I need to kind of do that now and say, how do I take all of that, what's happening, and apply what I my strengths and then go do something new. So I'm in you that should, mode. You should totally do the intern thing. Uh, we had It's like Robert De, De Niro. Uh, or or <laughs> yeah, Robert De Niro younger. in the movie. But we had Joe Mowgli on the podcast, and he was you know the CEO and chairman of Meritrade. And then he quit that to be an intern for a college football team. Uh, I and love now that. he's a I, football coach. I love that. Yeah, so, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that story. That's great. Yeah, I don't know. That, that we was, could use one, so let us know. <laughs> and maybe I'll come and intern. Yeah, here. exactly. Yeah. Sure. And, and um, when Jesse Itzler was on, yeah. he said, oh, you should be an intern with Sarah Blakely. We should both be interns for Sarah Blakely, see how spanks are made in the, in the factory. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to mention you give a lot more idea things. We're not going over all of them. I encourage people to to get the book and see all these different ways for idea generation. In addition to the billion other, like I like how you tell a story and then kind of encapsulate it into the lessons you've learned and exercises to try. I think this will make anybody like a, a better employee and a better uh, businessman and, a, and just a more creative person. Like you said, it doesn't have to be about business. It's like your dad went from... Uh, dentist to artist. This is about reinvention, not just because you helped GE reinvent, but because you repeatedly reinvented. Your story parallels that of GE and NBC and so on. And also, I think, and we didn't really talk much about it. Maybe I'll, I'll ask about this as one of the final things. You know, you've dealt with a lot of difficult characters, and a common question people ask is, I'm, I'm at work, I'm stuck at this job, and I one of my colleagues just hates me or is jealous or something, what do I do? Yeah. It's, a, it's a common, we've all felt it. We've all been there. Um, and you do a couple of things. I mean, I, um, I think I finally had to learn, like there's always gatekeepers everywhere. I don't, you know, and they're sometimes in your own head. And so can I work around this, this person? Can I, first, can I enlist them in, in a shared mission? You know, or do we have some common bond? Is there something that we can find commonality in that helps us move forward? No, they're just a total jerk, you know. Can I then build a team of people who we can move things together and we don't need him or her in that same way? Can we do that? No, I can't do that. Um, you know, I think you work through those kinds of things. Can I just go out and do some things on my own that don't need his or her permission? Like, I know what my scope is. Can I craft my job in a different way that allows me a bit of joy and work on projects, and yet I give the boss or the job what they need? So I do think you have more power than you think in these, but at the end of the day, if you've tried all those things and you work for a jerk or a company that's not going to change, you may just have to say, I got to go do it somewhere else. And that, a lot of people are afraid to do that too. That requires permission. Yeah, and I, I share in the book a lot of the struggle um, just that I had, that the teams I had. And honestly, I stayed in my company 27 years. I stayed too long. I can say that with certainty. And I had to face into that as I was writing this. I was afraid to leave in some respects. There was always a reason, and they were good reasons. But I, it seems like Jeff was a very good... Uh, 
I don't want to say mentor because you were already really advanced in your career, but he was it seems like it was a really good coach for yeah, you. He was a good coach. He was a really good champion. You know, he he he's he was a good champion for difference. Um he he promoted a lot of women at GE. He promoted a lot of global people. He was pushing for the future and um and gave us room to do it. And I with a different kind of person, I might not have stayed as long. And also, I was able, it was a huge platform. I was able to reinvent myself. I was able to take on more things. I'm ambitious. It mat, The platform kind of matched my ambitions from that perspective. But if I'm really honest, I think there was definitely fear, even in myself. Here I can say I'm a change maker and you have to change this way. But if I'm honest, yeah, I was afraid about trying well, some of these things. Well, I like how, you, I mean... People are always people always say, "Oh, never have regrets." I never have regrets uh-huh. because I wouldn't be where I am now, which is true. But it's okay to say this might have been a mistake. And I like how in the book you you kind of admit it was a mistake. And we didn't talk about this, but you turned down a massive job from Steve Jobs at Apple right when Apple stock was about to take off in Zoom. Yeah. It's the first trillion dollar company yeah. now. I think in two thousand five, maybe it was worth eighty billion, something like that. Uh, you know. You would have had options at a much lower price. Yeah. You would have. I would have done okay financially yeah. for sure. And and he was offering. I don't know exactly the title of the job, but I assume it was probably like a head of marketing type of thing. It w- they were both times they were somewhat ambiguous. The first one was a little bit more specific. It was in iTunes. The other was more ambiguous. But um, I just couldn't see myself there. I just couldn't. And yeah, I regretted a lot when I, I still remember my husband and I sitting down at our kitchen table and I was doing all the math. I, had to, I saved the spreadsheet. Just I saved it because I, I don't know why. I think I knew I was going to say no, but I was questioning myself. I still have it today, like all the pros and cons. You should frame it. I should. I think that's like a work of art. Yeah. You should donate it to the Smithsonian. I, yeah, I, and, uh, and we were going, how good can this stock ever be, really? I mean, come on. In our wildest dreams. You should have called me. I was on <laughs> CNBC saying Apple would be the first trillion-dollar company yeah, even back were, then. Yeah, you were very prescient. Yeah. So. Yeah, but you also can't, like... It wasn't the right thing for me. It just, and I picked another path to parallelism. I picked another path, and you can't spend all your time going, oh, what could have been? It didn't. And so you have to make the path your own work. But this this is a good segue because, in that, you've met so many interesting people in the history of business over these past 20 years. I just wanted to get your like one sentence perspective on each person, and I'll start with Steve Jobs. I mean, you spent, you, you did one of his famous walks with him. Yeah, well, um, I mean, intense. I think he was incredibly intense, you know, just to the point, very intense. Sounds like he was generous with you, though, when you said no. Yeah, he was incredibly generous. I mean, I remember calling him on the phone and just a pit in my stomach. And, you know, I said, I don't don't want to move. I I have a daughter going into high school, and I had another one. We went through that. I just don't want to do that. And he was like, oh, my gosh, I understand. He was so empathetic about that. Um, and surprisingly so. I expected him to be like, you know, you're crazy. You're missing the biggest opportunity of your life, you know, and whatever. And he didn't do that. So that was a nice surprise. Jack Welch. Jack Welch, incredibly, uh, he loves people, uh, incredibly candid. That's how I'd say about, he loves people, but he's incredibly candid. Um, was it really true that, you know, based on your reviews, he would fire every year the bottom yeah. 10%? That was that was at that time. That's that was the method to really, the, you know, kind of the bottom ten percent every year. If you weren't up to snuff, you got you got eliminated. And you know, I think that had its day, but it clearly wasn't sustainable. And and also his strategy of buying the one or two, the number one or number two ranking companies in every industry. Do you think that's a strategy that 
worked or works? I hear that a lot from people who are like, oh, that, you know, it's still taught in business schools and it works until it doesn't. And I think, again, like NBC quickly went. Yeah, you, know. you have to think ahead because what happens is people are crafty, right? We're crafty people. And what happens in businesses is they, they become, the market gets smaller and smaller. The, they let the position get smaller and smaller. So I'm number one in a very small market segment. I'm still number mm. one, but I've missed the opportunity for growth. So maybe you have to be number four, five, six, but with a path to get to number one, it takes longer. It takes more investment. Um, it gives you a little hunger. It gives you hunger. And mm. so I think those unintended consequences are some things you have to think through. Mm. I'm going to fire the 10% of every year. I'm going to fire the 10%. Okay, well, not everybody. I mean, maybe that you need to, you need to constantly refresh your workforce, but there are also people who aren't going to always be your top 10%, certainly in that job. Move well, them to another job where they can be the top 10%. Yeah, like who gives that famous, the, most, the Sir Ken Robinson gives yeah. the most famous TED Talk where he talks about a girl who's not doing well in school and she keeps getting tested. And while she's being tested, she's just jumping around. And the tester says to the parents, your daughter is not a natural student. She's a dancer. She becomes one of the most yeah, successful dancers that. ever. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, we've talked about Jeff Immelt. Uh, well, Jason Jeff, I would say about Jeff. I mean, Jeff's incredibly customer-focused, lives to be in the world. Like, he'll travel anywhere for a customer. And I saw that that f being uh, fearless, he, he was able to be fearless and take on a lot of change that wasn't popular. So that's what I, that's what I learned from him. Uh, Warren Buffett. Uh, I have only interacted with Warren very briefly. I mean, like meeting him, but always been, I mean, his storyteller, right? Don't we love his stories, right? Yeah, it's he's always, grandpa. He's it's like a grandpa. It's always those little corn pone-isms that we just love, right? It's just, it's a story. Uh, Jason Keillor, the, the Hulu founder of Hulu. Of Hulu uh, what customer first? It was all about the customer experience, and he didn't care. Just it's all about the customer experience. And I think that's a very um, internet centric focus yeah. because no matter what you do, on, no matter what the technology is on the internet, there is a user interface component yeah. that ha that's that's most important. Yeah, and we had lost that at NBC. Um, it was, let's put more, ad and I oversaw ad sales too, but it was always, let's put more ads in, let's put more ads on. And he br that brought that outside perspective of you're killing the viewer experience. We, we knew that, but you let that happen. And so having him as a founder of Hulu was really key because he brought that perspective in a way we couldn't, we weren't able to do ourselves, which is kind of weird. Um, here's one you haven't met, but, but you'll have an opinion on Thomas Edison. Yeah. So I love Thomas Edison as obviously we think of him and we learned in school he's an inventor. He's a marketer. He's a brilliant marketer. My favorite story of his is he did this torchlight parade in downtown Manhattan and he had 400 men, and I'm sure they were all men, uh, marching with light bulbs on their head and these huge cave, wire cables down their back marching down around, uh, probably down around the, you know, the utility centers down there to prove that electricity was safe and to tell a story of mm. we're going to march with, with light bulbs on our head and show you how safe it is. And He's didn't he light for free all of downtown yeah, Manhattan? Yeah, he just, he, he got ahead of the market. He had to make the market. So he was a marketer in my mind. I feel like there's a revisionist history around him where everybody says, oh no, Nikola Tesla was yeah. the true brains. Well, I mean, it's also who invented what, right? I mean, Thomas Edison didn't invent the light bulb, but he knew how to scale it and commercialize it and get it to market in a way that it got big. So are you going to be pure about the invention of electricity and pure about that, or are you going to figure out who can make it most use, who, who can have it used the most widely, who can make it most accessible? So I, you don't mention a lot of women in the book, yeah. but I want to ask you about different women 
business leaders like Sheryl Sandberg. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've had the opportunity to get to know Cheryl. I mean, she's very generous with her time. I love the way that she coaches and recommends women for boards. Um, I think she's been very generous with the attention she's had sharing it with others. And, you know, I'm glad you mentioned that. I, In my time coming up, the generation I was, I had a lot of great women colleagues, but we didn't work for a lot of great women. Uh, and I've always felt... It, hopefully my women colleagues feel similarly, but it was my job to make sure we brought more women and different people in. I remember going to meetings and literally I'd feel like I had like a full beard when I left. It was like testosterone central. Like I have to shave. Like where am I? And you'd look around and you were like, there were only one or two women in the room. And by the time I left, it, they were almost at parity. Not It still wasn't where we needed to be, but so that, I think, is progress, and um, and we're still not where we need to be, but I think men and women need to keep fighting and bringing in people who are different than themselves. And so I wish I had more women to highlight. I wish I had worked for more women, but I certainly worked with a lot of great women. Uh, Do you ever work with Meg Whitman? Uh, I, I have met her through the course of business. Um, again, very super smart. I, 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 many of the women I've gotten to know and who are in senior levels are very generous. I, I use that word quite often with them because I think they recognize that there haven't been as w- many women in the, some of these positions and they want to share what they've learned. So, so final thing I'm curious about, you know, you've been married for how long? For uh, um, maybe uh, over 25 years. 25 years. Uh, Chris, your husband's name, he's followed you in all these jobs. He's probably probably come home with all these stories that he's kind of worked, you know, you've talked out with him. I don't even know what he does in in the book. I don't know if you mentioned it or not, but I didn't see it. He's a former journalist. Now he's a business marketing executive, consultant. Was it, you know, obviously you've had uh, kind of a higher paying job all throughout or through most of this. Was that ever like what's the what's the secret in a relationship like that? Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. People don't ask that question, but we should talk about that more. I mean, one, I joke and I just put it in the book that my husband's my therapist. What someone once asked, like, "Oh, you married your therapist? Tell me that juicy story." And I'm like, "No, he is my therapist. I didn't marry a therapist." But I mean, like, he had like. Part of it is he's a really good listener and he has to be, I guess, married to me because I will bring home those stresses and those challenges and he's a good listener and a good coach. So I've been really appreciative of that. And the money thing, I mean, he's he had a career and I had a career and I think we just had to constantly check in with each other. Like it, for us, it wasn't like a plan, but about every three years we check in. Where do you think your job's going to go? Where's mine? And you'd have to make decisions. Uh, when I first met him, he was overseeing media organizations and traveling a lot to South America. Like at some point, if he was going to be in South America all the time, I couldn't take other jobs. So I don't think I want to do that anymore. So then I could lean into doing different kinds of jobs. So we had to sort of share those career aspirations. And at one point he said, I want to be more of an entrepreneur. I want to take a shot at this. And that put him on a certain path that was different. And so it, financially, it just became a different kind of conversation at that point. And like when you were traveling a lot, um, which was a reversal, um, you know, later in your career, I'm imagining you're probably traveling to every division of GE yeah. and all over the world. And, and actually, you mentioned you, tr- you literally were traveling all over the world. Um, how did he handle that? Like you're, you were absent a lot, which is again un- an unusual role in in traditional. Yeah, well, he's easygoing, so I uh, I married well in that respect. He's an easygoing guy. Um, and um, with with my daughters, I mean, I didn't travel as much when my daughters were young. As they got older, I traveled more, and there was just more support to help with them, and they were they were uh, independent. But we just we just 
stay in communication. He knows that's what I like to do. I think he also knows I like to work. And if he didn't appreciate that about me, I think, you know, he probably wouldn't have married me. Are you getting sick of each other in retirement? Well, not, 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 not yet. No, I think I've been too busy on the book. I think he thinks it's just like, like normal. I throw myself into nonstop work on a book. But I do, I do sense you, you want the, the lake and the rainbow and <laughs> just row a kayak and read I a book. I do want that at least, at, at least for a couple of months. I think I want a gap year. I really, this was supposed to be my gap year and it's turned into my book year, but maybe I am just not possible of ha- in having a gap year. You're not going to do it. You're going to say this year, starting now, is is I'm going to take a break. You're just going to get busier and busier. Yeah, I see it happening. That, you're right. That is my prediction. You'll come back here one year from now, and you'll say you're absolutely you were absolutely right. Or I'll be interning here a year from now, and you maybe can tell me. we'll take you. I can't even believe. So so first off, Beth Beth Comstock, author of Imagine It Forward. I'm gonna can we push say that in the beginning? I forgot to say the title of the book. <laughs> Imagine okay. It Forward. Um, uh, the subtitle is Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change, but it really is about how to improve your imagination in almost every situation and how to, you know, you tell these great stories about how you rose in business and the industry in general and and the challenge of digital. There's actually so many topics you talk about. We could keep going for another four or five hours. Uh, I was yeah. fascinated by all the uh, analysis of going from industry to digital and yeah, it's not a quick read. I, I intentionally tried to make it very uh, deliberate, and you know, try to have, have people reflect on some of the lessons. So we'll no, see. No, you, you can't skim this book. This yeah. is the book worth worth reading, and yeah, every detail is important. And uh, I can't even believe I get to talk to you. You were, you were helping. You were the number two person at the most powerful company in the world for forever. Um, but thank you so much for thanks, James. Coming thanks on for the having podcast. me. Really an honor. Podcast. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. It's been thanks. fun. Thank you. Thanks you so made much. it go so fast and fun. You're you're so good. Thank you. I, I appreciate you saying that, given your experience in media. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success, from before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals, knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.